Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 187 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. I had a fascinating conversation with today's guest. His name is Tim Elmore, and I've known Tim for a number of years. We get into it a little bit. He is actually the guy that introduced me to Reggie Joyner, who introduced me to Andy Stanley. And I mean, it's one of those relationships where man, God's just used it to open so many doors. And that goes back to meeting Tim for the first time about 14 years ago. And he has an incredible ministry to church leaders, to schools, and also to businesses, talking about the next generation. And he's just passionate about it, but he's also got incredible insights. I mean, uh, when you're listening to this, I think for those of you who are parents, you're going to have your parent hat on, um, but you're also going to have your boss hat on. And and let's be honest, you know what? You're going to have your you hat on. Like, this is about you because anxiety and stress and just some of the challenges of life today are often getting the most of the best of us and certainly the next generation. And so Tim and I are going to talk about anxiety in young leaders and overcoming the battles we all face in a really stressed world. So thanks so much for tuning in. I think you're going to love it. Hey, for those of you who share this with your team and who share it on social, thank you so much for doing that. You're helping the podcast grow and we are uh, hearing from new listeners every single week. So uh, we are so grateful for that and the opportunity to do what we do. And a couple of things I want to let you know about before we jump into the interview. First of all, Number one request these days is, hey, can I have some of your time, Carrie? People are like, all I need is five minutes on the phone, or can we, you know, Zoom, or hey, I'm going to be, you're going to be in my town. Can we grab coffee? And man, I, I would love to say yes. And, but you know, it's, it's challenging to do that. But I'll tell you what I am doing. In June, I'm literally hosting a conference and throwing a party in my backyard. It's called the Canadian Church Leaders Conference. We have a few tickets left for it, and I want to tell you about it. You can head on over to canadianchurchleaders.ca, and you can come even if you're not Canadian, but we're going to talk about how to change your church and change in the church. And I've got some great speakers coming from across Canada, plus our Connexus team. And then on the Friday night, uh, we are going to throw a party in my backyard for a couple hundred liters, and it's going to be a blast. Like, it's literally at my house, and uh, you can get in right now. There's still some tickets left. We anticipate it selling out. Head on over to canadianchurchleaders.ca and get your tickets before it's too late, and then you can say, yeah, you know what? We actually got together in person, which I'm so excited about. Um, also, hey, I know for a lot of you, I'm getting, because I've been doing some teaching on this, some writing on this, it's in the Breaking 200 course. A lot of you are wondering about scale. It's like, how do I scale this? How do I get out from under the tyranny of the urgent? Everything seems to bounce back on my desk. I seem to be the leader who does everything. You know what? A lot of that is, it's delegation. And you may be at the place where you just need an extra half person or quarter time person, or you don't have an assistant, or maybe you do, and your team is just maxed out. That's when I turn to Belay Solutions. And I've got a virtual team. They do incredible work. But uh, the person who manages this podcast for me, she's a Belay Solutions employee. 
Um, ditto with the person who handles all of my speaking, like Leanne and Holly Beth. I work with them on the team. Uh, Leanne is actually expecting another child, which is really exciting for her and her husband. It means I got to get a new team member this summer. Well, guess what? Belay makes it easy because they do the pre-selection for me. I don't have to interview like 500 people. I don't have to field resumes. It's basically... They let about 2% of the candidates that come to them through to the stage where they present it to you, the client. And I'm going to look at one or two people. I'm going to choose. And then that's it. Like it's, it's, it's done for you. And I got to tell you, their selection process is incredible. So that's why I use Belay Solutions. I'm a very happy client. And if you're looking for anyone like 10, 15 hours a week, 20 hours a week, check out belaysolutions.com slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y, and see what they can do for you. I got to tell you, it's been a game changer for me. And as my team grows, I'm going to continue to rely on Belay Solutions. So go to belaysolutions.com slash carry. If you are looking to hire a team, because I, I'll tell you what, nothing multiplies your leadership more than making sure that you do what only you can do and getting the help you need. And they can help you. Even if you're not sure, just dabble in, you know, those few hours, 10 to 15 you'll be shocked at the difference it makes. So without much further ado, let's get into my conversation with Dr. Tim Elmore. He is the founder of Growing Leaders. He's been featured in the Huffington Post, Forbes, on CNN, on Fox and Friends. He has worked with major league sports teams, lots of universities with major corporations like Chick-fil-A, Delta, and so many more. He's authored more than 30 books. And here's our conversation on stress, anxiety, and working with young leaders. I think you'll find it fascinating. Well, Tim, I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Carrie. It's great to talk to you again after, I think, some years now since we've last uh, Yeah, I was doing the math. And uh, just to tell listeners, too, this is, this is so cool how God uses moments, because people always ask me, how did you meet people? And John Hull actually introduced you and me. Because um, I had asked John to keynote at a conference we were doing, a church leaders conference back in 2004. He said, Carrie, I'm not your guy, but there's a guy named Tim Elmore. And I said, tell me about Tim. So you were kind enough to fly up to Canada from Atlanta, and uh, you crushed it, like just did an unbelievable job at the event. And then I said, so Tim, we should get a speaker for next year. Who can you introduce me to? And Long story short, you introduced me to a guy that I had never heard of, but I'd heard of his boss. Um, so his boss was Andy Stanley, and this guy was Reggie Joyner. Oh, and wow. little did you know, or did I know, that Reggie and I would become fast friends now for 13, 14 years. Um, he spoke the next year at the event. He introduced me to Andy, and we became a North Point strategic. Like, literally, it was a life-changing connection. And that. I've, you know, you and I have met a few times. In uh, yeah. more more right after that, and then I've just followed everything you've done. So what a thrill to have you on this podcast. Thanks, Kerry. I feel the honor is mine. Well, uh, tell us, Tim, you've become, and I quote you all the time, so um, whenever I'm speaking on these issues, I quote you a lot, uh, but you got really interested and fixated on ministry to students and really even beyond ministry to students, just what students are struggling with and young adults too, right? So millennials yeah. and now Generation Z or Generation Y or, or IY yeah. and Generation yeah. Z. How did you become passionate about these issues, Tim? Well, Carrie, I really think the, the true answer, it was, it was an evolution of thought. I began teaching students in 1979. 
So wow. the tail end of the baby boomers were coming through, and I was yeah. one of them. But I began teaching, and I just fell in love with students. And I decided that was where I was going to spend the rest of my career with sure. the emerging generation, even though at the time I was the emerging generation. Um, and then along came Gen Xers, and much was written about both baby boomers and Gen X from social scientists. I became intrigued by the differences. You know, the boomers were this baby boom, this 76 million population, at least in the U.S., and I'm sure they were pretty large in Canada, too, right oh, after yeah. World War II. But then Gen X was a smaller generation. Their generation started with a birth control pill, you know, right. and then Roe v. Wade, at least in the United States. So the boomers were a boom. The Xers were a bust. In fact, they were called baby busters at first. True. So I guess my intrigue was, ooh, how different are these generations? And they're different not because humans are different. We're all sinners that need to be saved by grace. But we're different in that the complexion of the culture we grow up in the first 20 years really shapes us. Mm -hmm. Shared music, shared tragedies, shared heroes, shared television programs just mold us and give us a, a point of view, a POV for our world, good or bad. So anyway, I just want to help leaders, whether they're business leaders, coaches, teachers, or pastors, really connect with the emerging generation that we've got to, we've got to figure out how to connect with them. We can't just say, I'm going to figure it out later uh, because they're here now. So anyway, that was, that was kind of my, my journey into understanding generations and then um, really helping leaders connect with them and um, help them work together in the workplace. Well, you become an internationally respected authority on the whole subject. And I remember one of my favorite quotes of yours, I know it was on your blog, and then I think you wrote about it in the Huffington Post and, and a variety of places. But uh, you have said that we're raising a generation of kids who are now honestly adults for the most part. Yeah. So think of what, sub 30 or so? Uh, who are suffering from, and this is the part that really just hit me, a generation of people suffering from high arrogance and low self-esteem. And when I read that, when you wrote that a number of years ago, I'm like, oh, bingo. Like, that's exactly it. Just explain for leaders what you mean by that. Yeah, well, it sounds like a very derogatory term. I apologize. Yeah. But I actually first heard it from two psychologists, independent of one another, but they were using this term as a diagnosis, believe it or not. Wow. Uh, and so here's the way I would explain it in, in just simple terms. So young people today grow up in a world, it's the first generation of kids that don't need adults to get information. I mean, that's just it's true. Weird, you know, we used to be the grand brokers of all the data. You know, they needed us because we knew and they didn't. Well, now, thank you, Google, they don't need you for information. Mm -hmm. uh, so the bottom line is because of their access to so much information, they, be, they can become arrogant and prideful, like I'm all that, you know. Plus, in many ways, I don't mean to overspeak, Carrie, but in many ways, they were a generation of kids that we wanted to ensure had good self-esteem. So we told them they were awesome for putting the fork in the dishwasher. You know, we gave them ribbons just for showing up at the, you know, soccer right. practice. So, you know, all these things crunched into one gave them a veneer of perhaps conceit or arrogance, but then the first time they meet real opposition or obstacles or hardship, right. very often, not all the time, but very often, they just crumble. And so it's low self-esteem. It's I put this um, I put this persona out there on social media that I'm awesome, but then I, I feel deep down I'm really not that awesome. And and when I meet obstacles, I I just crumble. And by the way, one last thought. We're meeting with Division I NCAA coaches 
that right. will say their top talented athletes su- su- suffer from this. So these gifted athletes will come in with high arrogance, level of self-esteem. So I think it's our duty as leaders to make sure that we help them through this and become healthy, well-adjusted adults that can serve. Um, I use the term serve people and solve problems. That's what we need people to do. Mm. So um, that's, that's, our, that's our mission. Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting, you know, the way you've phrased it, the way I've seen you write about it, and even the way you speak about it now, because I can see that high arrogance comes from this idea that I'm invincible, I'm bulletproof, you know, my mom thinks I'm awesome, all the teachers, you know, even though I failed, I didn't really fail because nobody fails anymore, right? That that whole thing where you get affirmed along the way. But then is it in your 20s that you kind of brush into reality and some prof fails you or somebody fires you or you don't hear how awesome you are every time you put the fork in the dishwasher? And there, there is a gap, just even epistemologically, yeah. where we kind of realize, hey, we are flawed people. We're really yeah. flawed people. Yeah. And, and so is that what's going on, that they're hitting reality and they kind of know inside themselves that there is, I am not as great as I thought I am. <laughs> yeah. is yeah. that it okay and by the way didn't we need to uh figure that out along the way ourselves well uh, we did mama always thinks her kids are awesome but um i we call this the huge jump between backpack and briefcase so yeah. all through school i may be making all a's and i'm getting ribbons and trophies and everybody just thinks i'm amazing or if they don't they tell me i am because God knows I need to have a good self-esteem and feel safe. But, um, you know, the, the workaday world that you enter, you know, the boss isn't clapping for you every Friday because you showed up at work on time. Um, Carrie, you may or may not believe this, but I just spoke to an HR executive who said one company that she works with has had to hire praise consultants. I'm not kidding. <laughs> there is and, such a thing? Okay. Yeah, they come in just to provide the affirmation that a young professional who's used to affirmation and feedback immediately uh, just needed. And, and again, I'm not saying every young adult is like this. I love no, no. young people. That's why I Me too. With them. I love them. I, most of my team yeah. is young adults. Absolutely. Mine too. But yeah. I think somewhere along the way, either parenting styles or just culture itself did not prepare them in their young adult years. Um, I, I often, when I do parent conferences, I'll say this, we did a lot better job protecting than we did preparing. And so I think this this is the result. Oh, okay. So a lot of leaders listening right now, they've got their kids at home. They're still young. I want to dig down on this a little bit, if, if you don't mind, Tim. Sure. Uh, where did this like over-affirming style, like what decade did it emerge in? And where did it come from? Was it a reaction to something? And because it, and and then I want to find out: is it still there? Like, if you've got a, do you, are <laughs> yeah. there are there some really over affirmed eight month olds right now? Yes, yes. Okay, so I've got some good news, but let me start with the yeah the question. Where did it come from? Yeah, I actually believe it really. Be- this whole parenting style, this adult leadership style, came on the scene about 1969. Uh, okay, this is where books began to be published. And, and it was the self-esteem movement. And it was well-intentioned and did a lot of good. It was actually a reaction to the leadership styles of adults from the builder generation that weren't affirming at all. Yeah. I mean, my dad's Shut generation, up, go to your room, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and, you know, dad would shake my hand. It's, <laughs> you know, it was just a very, very different World War II, Great Depression generation. 
So I think the boomer parents started to want to say, well, I want to do it differently here. So we were absolutely committed to making sure that the self-esteem and the safety of our children was, was top priority. So um, at least in the U.S., and I, want, I would love to hear what you think happened in Canada, but in 1982, another threshold happened. In the U.S., we had what we called the Tylenol scare. Oh, yeah, I remember a, that. Yeah, a bottle of Tylenol was laced with cyanide, and some people died taking this pill. Well, Tylenol was pulled from the drugstore shelves all across the country. That was September 1982. The next month was October. Kids are going out trick-or-treating, getting candy from strangers. OMG. Suddenly, I mean, parent groups sprung up all over the world, or at least all over our country. Yep. And it was like with one voice, they said, we will not let our kids do anything unsafe. And suddenly it seemed like, and really it wasn't suddenly, it was eventually. But in the 80s, the children became the deal. Now, is that a good thing? You bet it is. We need to prioritize the raising of our children. The downside was we lost our balance. And so with the child becoming the center of the family yep. uh, and, and the orbit of all planets were revolving. Well, I don't think children were designed to be the center of the family. They were meant to be loved, but to be a part of something bigger. I mean, doesn't this ring true and sound like the kingdom? 100%. Uh, so, so anyway, all of this happened. I'll stop because I'm waxing eloquent now. But all of this, this led us to, I think, a, a parenting style and a leadership style that you've heard, the helicopter parent that hovers over their right. children, uh, the Apache helicopter now, I must <laughs> say. Um, and very often, the, uh, I call them the karaoke parent. Uh, you know okay. what karaoke what it, is? Yeah, 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 yeah. Karaoke is go down a little bar and grill and sing like Neil Diamond, you know. Right. Well, karaoke parent is the parent that wants to sound like their child, dress like their child, talk like their child. <laughs> they want to be like their kid. They want to be cool, forever cool. In fact, they want to be a pal rather than a parent. And I think we oh. all know parents so much to be a BFF that they don't offer the leadership that's much needed for a kid that's 9 or 10 years old. So anyway, I feel like it was a perfect storm of probably seven elements that I, that I outline in the book of why this happened. But I really am hopeful that we can turn this around. Now, let me give you some good news before you yeah. toss the next question to me. Now we could just stop right here. I'm like, okay, that's amazing. <laughs> like that is so much. It clarifies so much and it's so convicting, but please continue. Yeah. Well, the first bit of data has come out from Canada mm. on millennial parents and it's good news. Good. These young, young people that are 27, 28 and now starting to have their own kids are saying, I will not do what my parents did with me. At Thank least God, literally. Taken. Good. So they're seeing, oh my gosh, you know, I don't want to do that same thing and have my kids unready for the, they need to skin their knee. They need to not win first place or get a ninth place ribbon or, or whatever. So anyway, um, it's, it's kind of good news that we're beginning to see the pendulum swing back to the other side. Well, I am glad to see it. And for the record, I get in trouble in my country for saying this all the time, but generally speaking, if it's happening in the U S it's happening in Canada and we don't like to admit it, but it's just true. About nine out of 10 things translate North of the border. So yeah, yeah. it's pretty much a monoculture. And yeah, we see that, you know, this, uh, this obsession with self-esteem and security um, and that, that is a real epidemic. And, you know, the way I think about it is child-centered parenting produces self-centered children. And yeah. that yeah. is a real problem. You grow up thinking you're the center of the universe 
and really believing yeah. that. And I mean, that's a human problem to begin yes. with. We're, yes, we're, all, we're all idolaters uh, at, at, a, yeah. at our heart. And we've just exacerbated that as a generation of parents. So you think the trend among millennial parents is starting in reverse? I just want to ask about that because I'm not sure, you know, for those of us who who lead churches with really big kids ministries, I mean, yeah. I still see parents obsessing over yeah. their kids. I mean, Instagram is just full. I think this is the most fond over generation. Like, I don't want to sound like the old man here, which sometimes yeah. Yeah. I do, um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> But they're, you know, fond over and then everything's got to be organic and, you know, yeah. hypoallergenic, blah, blah, blah. So you do yeah. see the trend changing or do you, do you like, I, I thought it was getting worse, but I could be wrong and old and need to retire. You know, tell me. Well, I, I think this is one survey and it's the front end. So I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that we'll begin to see a trend change. But let me give you a good example of, of what you just said. This is a great example of why we must change and how if we don't, our kids are the victims. It's not, yeah. it's not us, it's them. So um, again, I don't mean to hyperbolize or, or overspeak here, but uh, about 20 years ago or so, the playgrounds of North America began to change. The monkey bars and jungle gyms began to be stripped away yep. from the playgrounds. Because, OMG, our child might fall off those monkey bars and break their arm. Right. So even though, Carrie, psychologists immediately began to write articles saying, wait, wait, wait. You do realize, don't you, mom and dad, that the same motor skills that your child uses to navigate those monkey bars will be needed when they navigate making tough decisions as a 20-something, like moving out of the house or doing that big job interview or asking someone to marry them. But alas, we were determined we were going to take those monkey bars off. Well, here's something interesting. As I've been digging through the research, I'm now finding that psychologists in America, Europe, and Australia are all finding a disproportionate amount of young adults who are having phobias about normal risk-taking ventures. So 20 years ago, they were 6 and 7 and 8 years old. Now they're 26, 27, 28. And, um, Carrie, I got to be honest with you, it, at least in the U S between the years 2011 and 2015, somewhere between 60 and 80% of students were moving back home after college. Right. Well, you know, you might say it was a bad economy. It wasn't that bad. Um, no. so I think we have done this. We, we did it unwittingly, but now we've got to, um, we've got to decide, you know what, maybe they do need to fall down and, and then we laugh and cry and, and hold them, but we don't let, we don't keep the bad things from happening. We walk them through it just like God does with us. So I think this is helpful on a, well, it's helpful on numerous levels, but here are two as parents, Tim, I can see us going, okay, if my kids are still young and in that developmental stage, over protecting them actually has later implications in that they lack the life skills um, yeah. Secondly, even as a leader coaching people, I mean, I swear we keep three or four counselors. We give them full-time work <laughs> at, at our church. We just keep yeah. you know, referring yeah. people out. And anxiety is such a big issue these days. And that comes from, in part, the lack of a skill set on how to navigate really the big challenges of life because somebody did yeah. that for you. Yes, absolutely. Really? Okay. That gives me that empathy as a leader for helping yeah. figure out why that is. Well, yeah, and I, I want you to know, I don't get upset much with right. the kids. I get upset with, with, with me, with the parents. 
And I really believe, I truly believe it was well-intentioned leadership, but um, we just, uh, well, here's, here, consider this statement. The more resources a child receives, the less resourceful they tend to become. Huh. So again, it's not a mathematical equation, but you know, if I just give my kid everything, they're not going to become very resourceful at all. They <laughs> right, right, right. So, you know, they, they get into their own apartment one day and then they have to do this or that on their own. I, don't, I hope they're not calling mama when they're 35 or 40. And, right. and so we parent for the short term rather than the long term. We lead for their happiness today, not their readiness tomorrow. And I think that's a, I think that's a fault and even a sin on our part when we're not thinking long term for our kids. So what does that look like even when it comes to paying for college, which is at the stage, you know, we're mm -hmm. just yeah. moving out of right now. Um, yeah. And, you know, my wife and I had long discussions about that because the two extremes are mom and dad pay for everything or yeah. mom and dad pay for nothing. And, yeah. you know, yeah. a student with a BA in psychology emerges with $50,000 of student debt. They will never pay off because yeah. they're not going to get a job with a BA in psychology. Right. Yeah. I mean, hey, if you're a medical doctor and you have 100K in debt, you have a shot at paying that off in yeah. five years yeah. if you live like yeah. a student for a while. If you if you're just going into the thirty thousand dollar a year economy, good luck with that fifty k of student debt or ever buying a house or a car or, or whatever. Yeah. So how do you navigate that with even like paying for college? What is a healthy model? Well, um, I think it starts when they're ten or eleven, Carrie. Yeah. Uh, meaning we don't have that conversation at seventeen before they right. turn eighteen and go off to college. Um, so I'm certainly not a perfect parent, but because of what I do with students. I saw this coming. So I started sitting down with my son and daughter and we began to plan for their post high school life. So real quick, let me tell you what I did with my son. So my son and I did trips to look at five different universities. Uh, the five he really wanted were in California. I live in Atlanta, Georgia. So that was all the way across the country. But we went out there and to make a long story short, we, we kind of tallied up points for the colleges and one particular school uh, won out. Well, it was a private school in LA. So I said, Jonathan, here's the deal I will make you with you. If you want to go to this school all four years, I will find a way to get it done. You'll have to pay for any grad school you do, but I will cover the undergrad. Now, right. I'm not imposing that on anybody else, but that's what I did. But here's what I added. I said, if you will stay home the first two years and go to a community college to get your general education, we'll split the money that I save. And he ah. took that. So it ended up being better financially for us because we're not rolling in cash. Yeah, yeah exactly. He wasn't rolling in cash. So um, he's now getting married in March. He's graduated and he's got some money that he's been able to tuck away because of that preparation. So I think okay. we just need to be wise and here's what I would say to listeners. The further out you can see into the future, the better the decision you'll make today for your child. Good point. We didn't get everything right, but just if people are curious yeah. what we ended up doing with our kids, we started the conversation early. And I mean, the fact that they're able to graduate debt-free was a miracle, like a true act of God uh, yeah. that we were able to help them. Um, and, and God's faithful that way, but it's something we had thought and prayed about for years. But we, even in high school, they had to contribute to a college fund. And yeah. so 100% of their income was not going toward it. And we said, look, you will pay, we will help. 
Uh, but yeah. there are some strings attached. So what happened? I mean, the reality is we paid for 80, 90% of it, right? Because, <laughs> I mean, making minimum wage, you're not going to be able to pay for a college yeah. degree working yeah. part-time during the school year or whatever. Um, but they contributed what they could, and we threw in the rest. But And then we put them on a budget, and, I mean, they were incredibly resourceful. I just couldn't believe it. Yeah. Sometimes I'm yeah. like, you know what? You have more money than that. You should spend it. But they didn't. <laughs> And, uh, and, and it was just, it was that idea of partnership that really, really helped. And so we were able to do it and they were able to do their part. But is that like, and I'm not saying this is how you should fund your kid's education, but that would be an example of like responsibility as well as, um, making sure that you don't, if you have the means to make sure that they don't end life crippled by crazy amount of debt, you know, that's, we sacrifice to be able to do that. Carrie, I think you were spot on. It sounds like you, that you really built some life skills in them while you were helping them get their schooling done. Um, one of the things that I often say to leaders and specifically to parents who were who obviously working with the next generation, the two ingredients that a young person needs to become a healthy adult are autonomy and responsibility. Right. And those two ingredients always go hand in hand. And a, and a young person gets into trouble when they get more of one than the other. So yep. think for just, if a teenager gets a lot of autonomy, you know, I got my car, I got my iPhone, I got my, you know, whatever, and no responsibility, they become brats mm-hmm. and need any more brats. If they get a lot of responsibility with no autonomy, uh, pardon me, but that proverbial homeschool kid that's never allowed to get out from mother's apron strings, you know, seriously, then they're not ready either. They're scared of the future. So I think whenever we are leading an adolescent or young adult, we need to be thinking, well, here, here's what my wife and I did. When, when our kids ask for more freedom, more autonomy, we'd always step back and say, okay, what do we need to couple with that that's going to balance that with responsibility? And when, when they got more responsibility, we said, okay, what freedom do we need to give them? You, they always go hand in hand. I think it's how life works, the kingdom works, and I think we've failed to do one or the other oftentimes with these, these kids. Yeah. I, I was going to say, you know, that it's an interesting um, synergy between the two, because I think that is true, frankly, of your life and my life and all of our listeners' lives, that autonomy and responsibility, too much of one, and yeah. you end up with a not very healthy scenario. Right. Yeah. Um, so your new book, Marching Off the Map, this is a great segue into it, really deals with exactly what we're talking about, that yeah. As these children who are maybe overprotected and overaffirmed become students and then launch into life, uh, Marching Off the Map is about a generation of students and 20-somethings who are really failing to launch. And I guess th- this would be, these would be issues that probably uh, challenge all of us, but I would say right up to people in their early 40s, right? We're raised in this kind of model or late 30s. So it's a little bit broader than that. Um, but they yeah. have increased anxiety, increased depression. You list a lot of stats about that and even heavily medicated. Um, yeah. I mean, for mental health issues, um, they aren't thriving bottom line. So right. in addition to what we've talked about so far, like, can you fill us in on like what's going on with this generation? Because I think a lot of, a lot of listeners, a lot of leaders who listen to this are in that 25 to 40. That's probably the majority of my audience. But then some of us are their bosses too, and so and some a lot of us are their parents, or we are that person. So speak to all of us as we try to work through this. Well, Carrie, remember earlier I, I made the statement: this is the first generation of kids that don't need adults to get information. 
I believe this is also the first generation of kids that we, the adults, can't say, I know exactly what you're going through. Um, right. I wasn't raised with a portable device in my hand. I wasn't no. raised social media or, you know, five personas on Snapchat or whatever. So Or access to porn 24-7, to yeah. name another big yeah. issue. Yeah, it was a little bit of a struggle when I was a teenager. It's a huge struggle and even addiction for even the majority of kids today. They've, they've been exposed yep. to it. So um, first of all, let me step back real quick and say Marching Off the Map was written for leaders of the next generation uh, on how we've got to change the way we lead. Uh, in fact, you probably saw this in the book, Carrie, but Marching Off the Map is actually a phrase that I stole from Alexander the Great. Yeah, it's a quote, uh, right? Yeah, so that's right. Give us great. a quote. It's a great quote. Okay. Well, uh, Alexander the Great was this great leader who was raised in, a, in, a, in an aristocratic family. Uh, Aristotle was his tutor. Can you imagine? It's crazy. Uh, <laughs> that is nuts. He gathered three armies together and marched across the known world, conquering every bit of territory along the way. But he didn't stop there. He was known to march into the unknown world, where they had no maps yet for and he was actually known to frustrate some of his soldiers because he transformed them into map makers. Right. They were actually mapping as they marched. And again, not to be cliche here, but I think that's exactly where we are today as we lead this emerging generation. Because we, we don't got, know. It's uncharted territory. Yeah, it really is. So, uh, and, you know, here's a, here's a pithy uh, anecdote about this, but my own parents couldn't teach me how to raise a child with a portal device in their hand. They never raised a child with a portable device in their hand, you know, so true, we're true. making it up as we go. So I try to lend in this book, not only the scenario that makes up Gen Z, the generation following millennials, but also here's some, um, here's a compass, not a GPS, but a compass. Here's how to find your true north as you make decisions for these kids and help them make decisions along the way. In a, in a world that's very, very uncharted, full of artificial intelligence. Yeah. Uh, in fact, Carrie, do you mind? I want to go down that path just for a second. Let's I do that. I want to back and forth with you. I, um, I have a chapter that I really deal with the technology that's coming. And I'm not a tech expert, but AI, artificial like AI, intelligence, yeah. robots are going to be gigantic, not peripheral, gigantic. Um, we already have smartphones. Uh, we now know smart cars. Uh, I live in a smart home. I mean, we're right. not rich. We have a home that I can set my alarm, uh, turn on the lights, and lock the doors remotely. You know, it's smart. <clears throat> Soon, within three to five years, we're going to have smart clothes mm. where we'll be able to throw a shirt into the washer, and it will communicate with the washer, uh, use cold water, warm water, hot water. It's crazy. Um, so last May... Yeah. I in Europe with my family. We're taking a little vacation to celebrate a couple of graduations. And while I'm there, I am stunned with some of the conversations that are taking place. So Europe is a little bit ahead of us yeah, in yeah. terms of you know what realities are going on. There are, in short, there are some cafes that you can visit, gentlemen can visit, and be served by a robot. But not just any robot. I'm not talking about, you know, Rosie on the Jetsons you right, know, right. over on wheels. I'm talking about a beautiful female-looking, runway model-looking robot. And you can be served a coffee and a sexual favor by that robot. Are you kidding me? This is happening in <laughs> Europe right now? Yep. 
So the big debate going on, on one side, some were saying, well, that would be helpful for marriages because the men will have their sexual needs met by a robot and their wife doesn't have to worry about that. Others are saying, of course, oh my gosh, OMG, that's not good at all. There's no intimacy with a machine. How can you do that? I'm thinking we're not even ready to have that conversation with the emerging generation, with each other. And so I'm afraid we're going to come into some realities that we're not morally ready for Mm. and certainly not ready to have a conversation for. And so, again, I'm just trying to help adults and leaders especially help their people navigate this crazy different world that is going to be within the next day for sure. Just a note to uh, listeners and leaders, we'll link to this in the show notes as well as everything Tim says, but a book that is really helpful on that, Alex Ross's Industries of the Future, I think it's called. I read it yeah. earlier this year. A really, really interesting book. And again, I mean, Germany's ahead on that, so's Europe, but uh, my goodness, Japan and China and Korea, uh, way ahead on AI of where anybody is in North America. Uh, so I think you're right. That does a good job of like casting the problems that we're struggling with, Tim, in terms of uh, that next generation. Anything you, else you want to add to a typical 20 or 30-something worldview that um, they're struggling with and maybe we need to understand? So having difficulty launching the safety of their childhood makes it hard to navigate the complexity of actual life. Um, 24-7 access to information, technology, not needing your parents to guide them. Um, what else is going on? Well, um, one of the most sobering realities for me, and it really changes the way I lead teens at least, uh, the average teenager in North America today experiences the same level of anxiety as a psychiatric patient did in the 1950s. Oh, so seriously? Wow. Yeah. Overwhelming amount of data and information coming at them, 10,000 messages a day. I don't think our brains were wired to consume 10,000 messages a day. Uh, In fact, I don't need 10,000. I don't need to keep up with the Kardashians or whatever. I just want to repeat that. The average 17-year-old is dealing with the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the 1950s? Correct. That's right. This is by a couple of MDs. So if that's true, um, I don't even think mom and dad and pastor and teacher – realize that, you know, we look at them and go, your world's wonderful. What are you stressed out about? But not only are we not building the emotional intellectual, and spiritual muscles, but, but we don't realize this, the anxiety that happens with the uh, 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 information coming at them, the level of, you got to be on and perform well on the soccer team, on the debate team, on the, you know, 4.0. It's just uh, everything demands your soul. Everything they do Hmm. demands your soul. And um, in fact, if you thought something about it, Carrie, I don't know how you were, but I bet your life was probably like mine growing up. When you're a child in, in our generation, you went outside and just played outside until all hours, yeah. and up a stick and a ball and made up a game. Now everything's supervised by adults and we're pressuring them to make the grade, make the team, make the team. And I'm thinking we need to, we need to, um, I think some, some, some part. I think we need to relax a little yeah. bit on some of the younger kids so that they're ready. In fact, let me make this statement. I want, I want to hear you volley back on this one. Yeah. In the Marching Off the Map book, I make this statement. What I see coming, even though I don't consider myself a prophet, I see the extinction of childlikeness and the extension of childishness. Yes. 
Wow. In other words, they're losing their innocence, their wonder, and their trust earlier because they're exposed to so much so yeah. early on. So they stay a kid when they're 27 <laughs> and, and need them to be ready to serve, to, to, to lead, to, to, to earn money. And so I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, these are two things that we should have just the opposite. They're ready for adulthood when the time comes because they had their childhood. Sometimes I say to parents, is it, is it because they never had a childhood that they're not ready for adulthood when it's time? So I uh, couldn't agree more. And you see that. We talked about that well in the earliest days of this podcast with Ted Cunningham on delayed adolescence or extended adolescence. Yes. But, you know, that, that's true. It's, it's that extended childishness that I do see in people in their late 20s. And that incredible, we're dealing, man, there's so many directions we could go, Tim. I know one of the real ministry problems or situations we're dealing with, because we have a lot of 20-somethings in our church, is you know they get out of the college years, and then there's this pressure to perform that you talk about. Everybody dreams of the the career job or the gig they're going to get that's going to make them you know rich and famous and successful and the whole deal. And of course, they end up at a minimum wage job or a, a subpar job, and, and they're just paralyzed by the gap between where their expectations were and where their reality is. Or even people who are getting the career jobs and finding them empty. I mean, I had that experience as a 27-year-old yeah. lawyer. You know, it's yeah. like, wow, this is it? And I love law, but like I was surrounded by a lot of unhappy people. Is that, yeah. is that ex- getting worse? Is that being exacerbated in this generation, this gap between expectations and reality? Yeah, absolutely. We're seeing this, at least in the U.S. and in every state we go to. So it's not just one part or the other. And Kerry, you made a comment earlier that I think helps us respond to what you just asked. Uh, You talked about, you know, college and helping kids through college. When I was college age and attending a university, it was very normal to work all summer and then a part-time job during college to pay for tuition. Yep. You could pay for your college year just working in the summer and then working. And you'd, you'd graduate debt-free and you did it on your own. Today, mm-hmm. there's no way that could happen. Uh-uh. So they do graduate with $28,000 debt or $30,000 debt. And you're right. If they get a normal salary, not a doctor, but a normal salary, good luck with getting out of debt before you're past midlife. Yeah. And so you can't make some of the decisions you want to make or go off to serve in another country or whatever it is. Because you're strapped with the money issue. And, and again, I don't think that's the freedom we were supposed to have as adults and as leaders along the way. So um, uh, clearly higher ed is going to have to figure this thing out. And I think it's going to explode. I think at least in, in North America, we're going to have to refigure out how tuition and how scholarship and how money works to pay for higher ed. And part of the answer, can, can I just say this? I hope yeah. it's helpful to leaders. I don't think every kid needs to go to college. Right. Um, yeah. That's another lie, pardon me, that we say, you know, if you're going to be successful, go to a four-year university and you'll, well, some kids want to be auto mechanics and they need yep. to be auto mechanics and they don't need a four-year liberal arts degree, you know, blah, 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 to, to do that. They, and so we need to let them thrive where their gift is and where their, their desires are and, and, um, and be real with them all along. We can love them and be real at the same time. And, and um, that means help them get ready for what they were designed to do. My dad was a tool and mold maker. And for 25 years, he and my mom ran a shop. They closed it 
13 years ago or so. Long story short, he was always crying out for skilled tradespeople and they paid more. I mean, back in the day, they were making 70 to 100,000 a year. If you walked into that shop and you were a good mold maker, you know, in the early 2000s, you could make 70 to 100,000 a year with overtime, which is 2x what a lot of college grads yes. are are going to make. And you know, what you needed was a journeyman certificate, uh, an apprenticeship and a college education, but nobody wanted to do that because that was beneath them. And, you know, so they'd work away at some white collar thing for half the money and, and a quarter of the satisfaction. And, you know, eventually my dad closed his business because there was no successor and they did okay with it. Now his son went into ministry, so I kind of blew that for him, (laughs) but, uh, (laughs) you know, uh, uh, but you know, it's 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 it, it, there are a lot of trades that are just crying out for people right now, and I, I think that's true. So I have a lot of empathy for young yeah. leaders and young people if they're seeing themselves in the headlines right now and they're going, "Tim, you are describing my life and my inner world." What are a couple of things that can help? What are what are some strategies for the person who's caught in that vortex right now, going? Yep, I was coddled. Yep, I was overaffirmed. Yep, life is mean. Yep, I struggle with anxiety. Yep, it's not what I thought it would be. What helps with that? Um, I love using a phrase when I talk to young adults. Um, and it's a phrase my mentor shared with me just a few years back. Uh, consider this. Um, when we see a lot of young adults maybe getting disillusioned with the reality of adult life, uh, I will often say, I cannot be disillusioned until I'm first illusioned. Okay. By that I mean, if I've got illusions that life will be easy, that things will be smooth, that I'll find a perfect, beautiful marriage partner, that I'll get paid $100,000 a year. Well, I'm bound for disillusionment because you know, 90% <laughs> chance that's not going to work out. It's not going to work but, out the way you hoped. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go through quarter-life crises, not mid-life crises when that happens. So um, I think we need, the first thing I would say is scrap those high, maybe even unrealistic expectations on what life will be before you're 30 or maybe before you're 35 and pull them back and say, I'm not a loser if in my 20s I found a really good mentor and I'm at least on a track uh, in, in a work that I love to do. I'm not getting paid a lot, but I'm, I'm at least I found the track that I want to be on so that eventually I'm really being remunerated, you know, satisfying, uh, fulfilled, and, and being paid for what I love to do. So yeah. I know this sounds terrible, but dial back the idealism and the expectations and, um, and realize I'm, I'm really in a normal place right now, still preparing. One of the things I say to young adults is, in your 20s and 30s, I believe God still sees you as a student, not a school student but I'm still preparing. Think about Moses. He was 80 when he started his life calling, you know, but boy, wasn't Cairo a preparation? Yes, it was. Wasn't the wilderness a preparation? You bet it was. So he dialed back. Well, I don't know if he dialed back. He probably had some days he was disillusioned, but boy, did he die satisfied, at least knowing he prepared Joshua and he had carried those people across the wilderness and up to the Jordan River. So I think that would be one thing I would say. You've got you've to be real, not, not just, you know, unreal in your expectations. Another thing I would say, though, is find coaches. Okay. I know this is not a newsflash, but um, I am so helped, more than professors, in all due respect to college professors, 
by finding mentors and coaches who will have relationship with me. Yeah. Uh, one of our habitudes, uh, images that form leadership yeah. habits and attitudes, is travel agents and, and tour guides. Um, I believe the difference between a travel agent and a tour guide, this is cliche, but here it is, um, tour guides will tell you where to go on vacation, give you the map and say, have a great time, but they don't actually go with you. Right. A tour guide is actually the guy you got with you in Hawaii or wherever you are going on that tour. I think for every one tour guide, you're going to have 50 travel agents. So you're going to have a lot of people giving you advice. Find some tour guides that go on the journey with you, that meet at Starbucks, that cry with you, that respond with wisdom to your maybe perhaps stupid questions. <laughs> yeah, like. yeah. And um, I just feel like that will make all the difference in the world. And if you can't find them close by, pray. And then they may be long-distance mentors. Maybe you call them on the phone. I yeah. have phone appointments every month with people further along than I am that I meet with virtually. So I'll yeah. stop there, Kyria. But No, mentors have been really good for me, and that's one of the things that I've talked about. And I, I Actually, I think that's one of the reasons so many young leaders listen to this podcast. You know, I could be their, their dad. Uh, or at least their boss. And yeah. uh, that's not true for all the leaders, but a lot of whom who listen. And what amazes me still, and I talk about it with our team all the time, is I don't know whether you were like this, Tim, because we're in similar seasons of life. But when I was 25, I didn't want to listen to anybody over 50. And this yeah. generation does, and they crave it for the most part. And I, unfortunately, I get far more requests than I can personally you know, yeah. fulfill but I always try to have some young adults in my life that I'm just walking with. And frankly, I'm learning from. Um, yeah, but they're also learning from that. That That's a really good strategy. What would you say, because this was a, a crystallizing part of the conversation for me where you connected some dots where you just realized the overprotection leads to a lack of coping skills or in ability to, to engage reality that's so intuitive uh, but again, you've rung the bell of a lot of leaders here. So where where do they find those skills if they don't have them and they didn't get them when they were growing up? Like what is what are a couple of strategies for them? Well, um, let me start with different life stations. So in in if you're a parent listening and you've got children, I would say um, you need to give your kids experiences, not just explanations. So I know we like to give the dad lecture, and I do yeah. too. It's never gone over super well. Pardon I'm a me. pro at it. You know, in my mind, kids don't think so. But, you they know, I think I'm great. Politics. I think I'm great. Yeah, yeah exactly. So um, let me just give you one example. So when my wife Pam and I saw that our kids were really good on screens, but not so good face-to-face -face like we wanted them to be, right? Um, we started some dinner conversations but I realized that we even wasn't doing the trick because they would always agree. Yeah, that's right. Yep. You know, Jesus, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we started having parties for our adult friends, my wife and I. And so we'd have our adult friends come over to our house and our kids would host the party. Oh, cool. So Bethany at 12 and Jonathan at eight, even beginning that young, would, you know, at first they went, oh, my gosh, this is so stupid. But eventually they learn to answer the door. Hi, Mr. Johnson. Come on in. Have you met Mrs. Smith? Can I get you some iced tea? Can I take your coat? And then we would discuss after the experience what had happened. And, you know, you always have great conversations after an experience. Seldom before. The it's a great idea. So we need to stage environments and experiences from which we can have some great 
great conversations. Here's another one, participatory. This is a generation that's participatory. So by that I mean, as kids, they've been able to weigh in on everything growing up. Um, everything's participatory. So, I mean, think about it. As young adults, <laughs> they can hardly watch a reality TV show without weighing in on who stays on the show next week. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. Well, how do we create environments that they have a say on where it goes? So if you're a pastor or a teacher, how can you let them put their fingerprints on where this program's going? Um, you and I both know students support what they help create. Right. S- support what they help create. Here's another one. They are an image-rich generation. Um, this is why, Carrie, you know this already. This is why we created Habitudes. Right. Um, this is not a sales pitch, listeners, but Habitudes are great conversation starters. I'm, I'm sorry. I just believe they yeah, are. Yeah, yeah. I'll link um, to it in the show notes, Tim. Okay. Habitudes are images that form leadership habits and attitudes. So we'll teach people skills, like I just talked about, with an image called chess and checkers. And it's a picture of someone playing chess. And we just say, when you relate to people, you got to play chess, not checkers. When you play checkers, you know all your pieces look alike, so you treat them all alike. When you play chess, you got to know what each piece is different. The knight's different than the rook, than the queen, than the pawn. And you got to know each piece. you got to know the strength and what it can do. So I'm just saying great leaders play chess with their people, not checkers. And people thrive under their leadership because... They lead them differently and uniquely. And, and Jesus did this beautifully. He talks to the rich young ruler fundamentally different than he does the woman at the well. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'll just say give them images. Pictures are worth a thousand words. And images are, I just think, they're, they're, the, they're the language of the 21st century. There's some Can, great... Last, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Okay, one more, one more. The last thing I would say is, you all know this listening to me now, but this is a connected generation. And by that, I mean connected both technologically as well as socially. They are always in touch, and it's often virtual. Right. So when we're delivering content, what if we allow them to connect with each other, not just listen to us deliver the content? Think about how classrooms or church is set up. There's long rows, and we're staring at the backs of heads, and one person is doing most of the talking. What if we gather them up and we, pro- we let them process and think out loud and connect with each other? Uh, now, you're going to say, will they say stupid things? Oh, yeah, they will. Will they goof off? Oh, of course they will. But boy, I have found letting them connect with each other. They start owning the truth at the end rather than just borrowing it from me as the lecturer. So anyway. You know what? I, I, th- those are such good tips. I think that's true. And let's, let's be honest, when you know we were in those classrooms with long rows, I was a guy passing notes anyway and trying to distract people. So uh, you're connecting with others. Yeah, exactly. Cause clearly this is going to be a long class. Okay. You know, so yeah, I was guilty of that. And you know, on a, on a real practical level for some of the courses I offer off my site, uh, we've set up private Facebook groups and you know, the, the carrot is always like I'm active in those groups, but people realize pretty quickly they're going to learn more from each other and gain as much from one another as they ever will from me. And I'll still engage in those in my courses, but like that peer-to-peer learning, friend-to-friend learning, mentor-to-mentor learning is is so good. So you've given us along the way some tips for leaders who are uh, maybe, let's say, over 40 and uh, trying to engage a younger generation. Uh, you've talked about participatory learning, right? So that's a threat to top-down leaders who are like, ah, I'm here to pontificate. 
and, and that's not so much present in 60 and under leaders. Most of us who are 60 and under have figured that out, at least 50 and under for sure. You're starting to realize, okay, the top-down model died a long time ago, but for some leaders who are still living in that space or love that space, it's hard to keep young leaders engaged. Uh, Other tips for parents and leaders who are trying to help young adults and under 40s navigate uh, this this really unprecedented world because I agree you know we we are technology's parent but we're also its child we don't know what this is doing to us and we don't we've we've created this now what do we do with it yeah wow well um, the first thing that came through my mind Carrie when you asked that question was a term that Jack Welch introduced to us in the 90s when he was still working as CEO of General Electric. He, he called it reverse mentoring. Okay. And what he meant by that, in fact, let me give you the scenario. So Jack Welch was this brilliant leader, this brilliant CEO, uh, who was noticing that his executives who were older were not, uh, they were not comfortable with computers. You know, computers were on the, on the tables now, on the desks, and we didn't know what to do. So he was asking his 20-somethings to help the older guy. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, you're the computer. So... Um, what happened back then was what he ended up calling reverse mentoring. So clearly the young person has something to learn from the older established veteran. Here's how life works. Here's how this organization works. But we need to say, let me listen. I think you could probably tell me how that app can be used for marketing or how that latest social media post you just made, how that informs me on reaching this entire generation. So I think there needs to be a two-way reverse mentoring thing going on. And here's the uncanny, magical thing that happens. We keep them. The moment we start listening to a young adult, they stay around. Think about the dignity it gives them. When somebody that's 55 or 60 is actually listening and laughing and crying and learning, and they're going, man, I'm adding value to this relationship rather than listening to the lecture. So it's both. It's both and. I'm giving and I'm receiving. And I actually think that sounds strangely biblical. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but we're just, our egos get in the way. And, and so if I can use another cliche, I dare you to meet with a young person and leave your ego and your logo at the door and just be human and and listen as well as talk and see what might happen magic not there to give but to get and to be open one of my sons uh literally today uh finally shamed me and convinced me into moving from apple music to spotify and i know all of our younger listeners will be well thanks eight years later but um you know what it was i had so many downloads in apple music that it was that sunk cost bias and I finally found this, I you know signed up for premium Spotify. And then I found this like, it was expensive, but it was a $20 app that like moved all of my songs from Apple Music to Spotify. <laughs> and the yeah. discoverability is a lot better. So now it's all done by the end of the day and I'm, I'm thrilled. But you got to be open to that. Otherwise you become, yeah. you know, that person who only watches cable TV, you become that as, as an older leader. And yeah. I think the older you get, the more important it is to keep changing your systems and uh, yeah, just your world, your ecosystem, yeah. so so that you're somewhat current without falling into the trap of being that parent who wants to dress like their kids and be yeah. like their kids and be a kid. Uh, right. You can be that leader too. We've all met them. So, Gary, you just said a mouthful. In fact, if if you don't mind, I want to volley back real quick. Yeah, 
one of our Habitude images really launches the thought on this, and really hopefully a conversation with your peers and colleagues. It's called the bit market. The okay. bit market. Here's the story. A brand new president just took over an electric drill company that sold drill bits and electric drills. At the end of his first day, he'd met all the staff members and the VPs at the company wanted to make some speeches so they could just brag about how great this company was. And vice president after vice president stepped up to the podium and just talked about how they were selling 60% of the drill bits sold in North America. They were sure that their future was bright. At the end of their little talks, the president stepped up and smiled and said, gentlemen, thank you for those speeches. Those were wonderful speeches. But after a pregnant pause, he said, you're just forgetting one thing. There's no market for drill bits. The market, he said, is for holes. And the moment someone comes up with a better way to make a hole, drill bits will be obsolete. Yeah. Exactly right. We fall so in love with the drill bit we're making right now, that product, that program that we're, ma that we're doing, that we think this is it. And no, 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 this is a means to an end. It's don't fall in love with programs, fall in love with purpose. Don't mm -hmm. fall, in love, fall in love with mission. So this pe these people, this company, had fallen in love with what they were doing, just like we all do. And so the first thought I thought of when I was, was thinking this through recently in front of a group of executives was Reed Hastings. Yeah. So if, remember, remember Reed's story? Mm. Reed, uh, way back in the 90s, I think it was, had rented a video cassette from Blockbuster Videos. We all remember Blockbuster. And he lost it. And it was like it was lost for, I don't know, weeks maybe. And finally, between seat cushions and the sofa, he found it and returned it to Blockbuster. And he got charged so much money for a late video. On his drive back home, he had two thoughts. Number one, how in the world am I going to tell my wife <laughs> you know, I just that was a thirty-eight dollar video. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, but number two, he said, "There's got to be a better way to rent videos." And Reed Hastings came up with Netflix. Mm -hmm. So here's what many people don't know: he took the idea to Blockbuster and said, "This could be a new way to get videos to the public." And you know the response, don't you? Nah, right. we're doing great. And of course. I hardly know a blockbuster now, but Netflix is doing yeah. quite well. Yeah, yeah, they're doing okay. So no, that's whole, so true. Yeah, the whole was movies. These, all these other things are just drill bits. These are just ways to get. So leaders have to think through what's the hole we're trying to drill, and let all these other things come and go. And and I just got to fall in love with the the hole we're trying no. to drill. And that there. is a great metaphor for church 2018. We're talking a yeah. lot about that this year on the on the blog and and on this podcast. Like you're right, it's confusing the method with the mission. And yeah. the method's yeah. got to change to preserve the mission. Man, can't believe we're almost at an hour. This is uh I think I got to question 3. Uh maybe uh, <laughs> Tim, this was <laughs> this is so rich. Um you know, the whole I I want to I want to um, close on a couple of things. One, the whole anxiety piece, because that yeah. is like a real deal. We've talked about it at a church. We have, I have people in my life I really care about who are struggling with that in that age demographic. Uh, any other tips, thoughts, insights, or even good theology that can help us with, with anxiety? Yeah. Part of, I think, the anxiety is not only the information I've referred to, and by the way, in response to that, I would just encourage over coffee the student or the young person that's in your life 
to, to not feel like they need to be at the mercy of all the information. Uh, technology is a wonderful servant, a horrible master. The second thing I would say about the anxiety thing, I think a lot of anxiety comes from our incessant need to multitask. And what I have found myself saying to students these days is, why don't you learn to monotask, not multitask? Do one thing at a time. In fact, actually, that's what our brains are doing anyway. We think we're doing several things. Right. They just shears really fast, and then we get tired. So why not just throw away the need to do seven things at once and really focus on one thing? This one thing I do. Uh, one thing have I desired, David said. So um, I, I just want to encourage you and the young people in your life, monotask and see if peace and quiet might return to your, to your soul, to your mind. And, and maybe, you get, maybe you feel like you get less done in the day, but boy, you probably actually get more done and you stay sane in the process and you sleep well at night. Uh, that's so good. And you know what? One real simple hack that's helped me a lot. I did it a few years ago. Remember when it used to be cool to get notifications on your phone? Like, whoa, somebody actually liked a tweet or look at somebody liked something I posted on Instagram. And then I remember having a moment, oh, years ago now, five, six, seven years ago, where I was sitting in a meeting and like my phone just wouldn't stop buzzing. It was obviously on silent, but it was like ding, ding, ding. And then I realized, okay, we've hit an inflection point. And then a few years ago, I just shut everything off except text messages. And even simple things like that, like just to turn off the noise, most of the day, all day, like I always think if my house is really burning down, the police are going to show up. They're going to tell me, you know, like, like at some point, if something life threatening has happened, somebody's yep. going to interrupt this interview right now and yeah. they're going to let me know. Yeah. Uh, is Absolutely. there, is there a wisdom to that? And I can check on my next break. Like, does that, does stuff that simple help? I don't know. Carrie, it does. Somehow, 30 years ago, we made it without smartphones. We, you yeah. know, we were living without all this, and I think we might have had a little less anxiety, a little more peace. So I don't, you know, I never tell young people, I'm trying to go back in time. We need to hold on to the good old days. In fact, um, I, I actually believe, if I can give a couple of quick metaphors, I know we need to close yeah. out. But um, there's a chapter in Marching Off the Map that I call Swing Sets and Plumb Lines. The swing set is a great metaphor you know when you put your child on a swing, or maybe back in the day when we swung our yeah. children, they always said, swing me higher, daddy, swing me higher. Right. Well, in order to go forward well, you had to pull them backwards high, you know, more. The further back you went, the more higher you could go. I think as we plan, we need to go backwards first. What were we trying to do in the very beginning? What problem were we trying to solve? What was our original intent and mission? So when we swing backwards, we're able to swing forward better, not randomly swinging forward wherever culture bebops us around, but we swing forward and say, okay, what are the problems still existing? What new uh, pro problems are we facing? Where do we need to go tomorrow? So the swing set, ask questions about the past so you can ask the right questions about the future. And then the second metaphor that I just love, it's actually a biblical one. It's the plumb line. Uh, you remember some of the minor prophets referred to this. So a plumb line was used by fishermen. Uh, it, it was a long rope or cable or a string yeah. that you put a uh, weight on the end, and you could put it in the water to plumb the depths of the water. So it was about depth. Right. But secondly, construction workers, builders, would hold it next to a wall they had just built. 
And if you hang it next to a wall and gravity pulls it straight down, you could see if your wall was crooked. You could say, oh, we're one inch off. I think we as leaders need to have plumb lines in our families, our organizations, our churches, where we say, I'm holding up the plumb line. This is what we said we were going to do. Oh, we're off by an inch. And it will, it will call us back to what we said we were supposed to do. As we move into this world of artificial intelligence and God knows what, may we have swing sets and plumb lines to, to really give us a, a, a true north uh, as we move into the future. No, and I think that's a good point. And, and, you know, in my world, that would be good theology is your plumb line. Yeah, sure. You know, really, really like, who am I? Who is God? What is this life about? Really? Yes. Uh, yeah. that, that kind of plumb line can get so lost in all the pressure, yeah. all the images. Man. Yeah. It's so you know, true. I don't want to trivialize this in any way, but I even feel more relaxed than I did an hour ago. Like I feel like <laughs> this is this is like permission to take a lot of pressure off. And I know there's a lot of anxious young leaders, uh, a lot of anxious listeners, and yeah. uh, I think this has been a tremendous gift. And for those of us, I mean, we all struggle with it. In your 50s, 60s, sure. 70s, everybody's got some anxiety. But um, I think even with coping skills for people who are under the gun and feel like they're under the gun, and then for those of us, who may be in our position to help others, uh, some really practical advice. Tim, I know we can go to the show notes, but people are going to want to go directly to you and we'll link to everything in the notes. But can you please tell us where to find you online? Absolutely. Thanks for asking, Carrie. We uh, never want to presume that anybody needs or wants us. We're trying to add value, but the website probably carries the best place to reach yeah. us. It's simply growingleaders.com growingleaders.com. And I do a blog, as you know, and, and I yeah. would love to stay in touch with anybody that felt like they might get some help from the kinds of things we're doing. We're really wanting to. We've got to reach this next generation. We just have to. Um, and uh, so we're hoping that there's a lot of leaders that put their hand to the plow and, and uh, make it happen. Well, and you spend an awful lot of time working with educators, with universities, colleges, and also businesses these days. Um, and so I know we have a lot of people listening from those spheres as well. Uh, Tim, what a gift. The book is called Marching Off the Map, uh, which is, which is so good. And, uh, just thanks for being with us today. Oh, Carrie, it's my honor. I sure, I love what you're doing. I so respect you, my friend. And, um, I'm encouraging you to keep up the great work you're doing. Thank you, Tim. Yeah. Well, my guess is you're going to want more. And if you do, head on over to the show notes. Just go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 187 or head on over to leadlikeneverbefore.com. Search Tim Elmore. You'll find the show notes with links to everything we talked about in them. And uh, man, we just love to serve you as leaders. And if you found this episode helpful, thank you for sharing it with your team. Thanks for posting it to your social media. Uh, we appreciate it. Every single week, this podcast grows and we meet more leaders and get to help more leaders and we're so thankful for that and so thankful for you. So next week we're back. And, you know, one of the challenges that we have in leadership is just so many people that, that started out with great hearts end up quitting. And like, why? And so Jessica Beeler and Gina McLean co-authored a book called Don't Quit. And I talked to them about why leaders quit and how to develop like better self-esteem, <laughs> why balance is a joke, and how to grow your resilience. Here's an excerpt from next week's episode. Whenever we would have a big meeting or a big training, 
um, we always had catered. We always catered food in for the volunteers. And I would let my kids take turns picking the catering. I would say, mm. all right, Isaac, what what do you want tonight? And he'd be like, I want Chick-fil-A. I'd be like, okay, great. You know, um, hey, Layla, what do you want? I want Subway. Okay, great. And then during the eating time, my kids would come in and they would eat the food with the, with the, the people that we were going through the training, the staff or the volunteers. Um, and they felt like they were a part of it. Like they got to, they got to help select the food. They were mingling with the volunteers. So it was their ministry as well as mine. And, and I think that, I think that whatever it is that you're doing, if, if you are trying to balance and you're trying to separate, um, you're going to create silos. And, and really the answer is integration. You've got to find ways, even, even if you are in the marketplace, you're in the workplace, you're in the workforce. I think that there are things that you can do that will help your child or your spouse understand what it is that you do every day. And, and maybe they won't be as passionate about it as you are, but at least they feel like you've brought them along with you. Well, Jessica and Gina have endured between them decades of ministry. And uh, man, it was a great interview. we got a lot coming up. Uh, lots of business leaders, lots of church leaders. I am so pumped for the year ahead. Subscribers, you get it all for free. It automatically drops on your devices every Tuesday morning. And we're going to throw some bonus episodes your way too uh, this year. So we're excited for that. Thanks so much for listening. Hey, if you are looking to leverage your leadership by building your team and growing your team, head on over to belaysolutions.com. That's B-E-L-A-Y solutions.com uh, slash carry. And uh, make sure that you tell them that I sent you because uh, they're going to take good care of you as they have me and my team. So we'll see you next Tuesday. Thanks so much for listening. And I really do hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.